He's our King. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. Thank you, Lord, for inviting us that we can be part of those who worship you. We worship you, King of Kings, this morning. Amen. Please be seated. Carol, thank you. Can I have the mic, Marius, please? Thank you, Marius. Thank you so much. Thanks, Carol. Okay, okay. I'm reading from... Oops. I'm reading from 1 Samuel 7, verse 1 to 14. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented before the Lord. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a burnt a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went up from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter the territory of Israel again. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites.
so much, Carol. Thank you for reading for us beautifully. I'm sure you, uh, you realize that we are in a foreign territory. We've been on the New Testament for many weeks. And now we're reading the narrative part and what's going on. This is the Old Testament. My hope this morning, as we navigate our way through this chapter, is that we will allow it to help us to reflect on God's faithfulness in our lives. As we come to the end of the year, which is a season that provides us with an opportunity to pause and look back, and look back on the journeys we've been on during the course of the year, and attempt to give an answer to that inevitable question, have I achieved the things I have set out to do during this year? And I don't know about you, but long before I give an answer to that question, my mind would have shown me the things that I have been unable to achieve. It would put a spotlight on the things I failed to do. It would put a spotlight on the defeats I have experienced during the course of the year. And naturally, one would find himself driven into despair and wonder if there is any point in going forward if I haven't achieved the things that I was hoping to achieve. Thanks, Anno. Again, you ask yourself, but why despair? That's a very normal question. One should ask himself that question regularly. Have I achieved the things that I have set out to do today, this week, this month, this year? I'm glad you know that. But at the heart of that question lies a sense of purpose, lies a sense of identity. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And those questions have existed since humanity. They are part of our existence. We want to know that we're here to make a difference. And when we feel we are not making a difference, we find ourselves despair and wondering. So my hope this morning uh, that when we come to the end of our time, we will be able to trace the hand of God on the journeys we've been on, even on the dark seasons of our journey. I hope like the psalmist we will be able to say, even there your hand will guide me, even there your right hand will uphold me. Even there, your hand has guided me. Even there, your right hand has held me. That's my hope. That we'll be able to say that, yes, it was dark, but I can still see the hand of God in that dark season of my life. So if I fail to do that, at least you know that was my hope this morning. Now, the chapter before us does both. It shows us the failures and the defeat of the people of God right before their enemies. But it doesn't stop there. It moves further to show us the great victories 
the people of God have received under God. Failures and defeats, victories under God. Shows us these the victories that they only come from the Lord. It is the Lord who brings both the defeat and the victory. In the chapter before us, we see God's people being transformed from mourn to repentance. The Israelites were very sentimental. They had traditions of repentance, which became just sentiments, not the truth, not the, 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 the real change of heart. They had a tradition of, to- of turning away their clothes and cover themselves with, cl- with, with dust and weep. But later in the prophets, we are told that the prophet said, stop turning your clothes. You must turn your heart instead. In this chapter, we see them moving from just lamenting and mourning into true repentance. We see half-hearted worship transformed to wholehearted commitment. We see crushing defeat transformed into complete victory. We see a growing despair transformed into glorious hope. That's the chapter before us. So if you would like to follow me um, clearly as you can, again, I'm going to try and do that. Here is my outline. A devastating defeat, that will be verses 1 and 2. A true repentance, I wrote here, a true dependence. But I know I haven't written that in the, in, in the board behind me. A true repentance of the people of God, verses 3 and to verses 9. A triumphant rescue, verses 10 through to verses 14. So that's what is going to occupy our thinking this morning. So let's begin. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. I'm sure you were happy that Carol was reading for us when it comes to those names. Because I'm sure I would be stumbling and there's nothing like put off like a bad reader. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. And all the people of Israel mourned. Those words referred back to chapter 4 of this book, I nearly said, of this letter, because we've been on the letter of 1 Peter. Chapter 4, there was this battle that took place between the Philistines and the Israelites. And the Israelites suffered a complete destruction as the people of God. It was a shattering defeat of the people of God right before their enemies. One of my favorite biblical character is David, who always say, I don't want to cry and fall apart before my enemies. In other words, I can weep and lament when I'm alone with God, but do not humiliate me, Lord, before my enemies. But the Israelites were humiliated right before their enemies. That's shattering. In fact, until this time, this incident of chapter 4 of 1 Samuel 
is one of two great tragedies recorded in the Old Testament. It was so devastating for the people of God. And the second one is when they were captured, the whole Jerusalem was captured, and the people of God were sent to Babylon as captives. So those are two. Now here is the measure of this um, incident. 30,000 infantry were killed. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10. If you want to confirm that for yourself. Eli, their leader for 40 years, died. When he heard the news, he fell on his back and he broke his neck. That was him gone. Hophni and Phineas. I was going to say Phineas and his brother, but I was brave and said Hophni and Phineas were killed in the battle. These were leading priests of the day. But supremely of all these tragedies, the one was very heartbreaking for the Israelites was the capturing of the Ark of the Covenant, which represented their covenant between them and God and represented the presence of God among them. It was captured. And the reputation of this in this letter, in this book of 1 Samuel, is typical of the Old Testament when it makes the point. It doesn't make the point by underlining the words or making them bold. It makes the point by repeating them over and over. Chapter 4, verses 17. The news was brought, the ark of God has been captured. Verses 19. When she heard the news of the ark of God has been captured, she died in childbirth. Verses 21. She named the boy Ichabod. Why? Because the ark of God had been captured. Verses 22. The glory of God has gone for the ark has been captured. What a bitter name to name your son, Ichabod. The glory of God has departed. No glory. That's your name. As you live your life, you will be Mr. No Glory because it represents a bitter era in the entire nation of Israel. The presence of God that which makes us realize who we are has been captured, is gone. Again, it's typical of the Old Testament when they want to mark a certain incident to give a name to someone or to give a name in that place in which it, took, it happened. I'm not sure about you, but naturally the question that comes up to mind is, where is God in all of this? Where are you, God? Like the psalmist would say, will God be angry with his people forever? Has God turned his back on his people forever? We begin to wonder if the powers of evil are greater than the power of God. Where are you? The answer to all those questions is a resounding no. No. 
God has not turned his back on his people. But rather, he is at work through this dark season. We discover as we read that the the almighty God is not a powerless prisoner at the mercy of his enemies. In two chapters before this one, we read that when the ark of God was captured, it was brought to the temple of Dagon, which was one of their famous gods. If you read the story of Samson, when he pulled down the entire building, it was in the temple of Dagon. And just the measure of the building, we are told that on the roof, it's fitted about 3,000 people. That's how big it was. So Dagon was famous. Now they take the ark of God, they bring it to the temple and put it alongside this famous God, one of their gods. Remember that they were, they were worshipping many gods. They were in the tradition of collecting gods. So the ark of God was going to add to their gods. So they were excited to bring this, um, this temple, this, this ark of God and bring it alongside. Now, the following day, there was a long queue. This is my imagination. You're not going to find it in the text. There was a long queue of people waiting to come into the temple to see this new collection. And they come into the temple to their shock. They find their God flat on his face before the ark of God. As if in obedience and in submission. They gently helped him and put him in his place again. They are God. And I'm sure they worshipped him after having put him back in his place. The following morning, they saw even worse than this. They find their God now shattered in pieces. His arms and head was all over the place on the floor. And I think what they... Only the only thing they could do was to collect brooms and just clean the mess. Their God cannot be equal with the God Almighty. So who is the prisoner here? It's not God Almighty. It's the one who's just won the battle. He is the prisoner. He is the one who is the prisoner. So, the second thing they did when they have collected this ark of God and bring it to the temple was to take it around the cities, the major cities, just as we've seen when the Springboks won the World Cup. They went to all the major cities of the Philistine. However, the problem was everywhere they went, There was destruction. There were plagues and illnesses. People said, take this thing back where you got it from. So their God could not stand with the God of the Bible. Their people could not contain the presence of the ark of God. What does this mean? Well, logically, it tells us that 
God is at the center of the defeat of his people. His sovereignty cannot be unpaired. God's sovereignty cannot be destroyed. Yes, his people may suffer humiliating defeat and devastating defeat, but his power and rule cannot be changed and touched. God is, sits on the throne. He looks down in the universe, on the universe. He's in charge of history. He's in control. The second logical thing we, we must gather from this is that God must have been responsible for the shattering defeat of his people. God is purifying his people through this defeat. Remember in 1 Peter we said there are, there, are, there are trials that we are to run away from because the aim for those they are to defeat us and destroy us. But they are the ones that we are to stand against because the aim is for them to purify us. And we see God here allowing destruction to happen in order to purify his people. That's what we see here. So whilst God was planning to wipe out this older generation of the Israelites, he was long before planning to raise up this young man, Samuel, who was going to take these people of God. We see this in Hannah's prayer in chapter 2. We see how this young man grew up in the temple. So on the one hand, we see God destroying. And on the other hand, we see God raising a deliverer for his people. God is at work through this dark season of his people. Can you say that about yourself? I don't know your seasons. You know, I know my seasons. If you ask me, how was 2019? It takes the crown in the struggles I've faced in my life. This one takes the crown. But do I see God? Yes, I do. Was God at work in me? Oh, yes, he was. He was. And I hope you could say the same for yourself as well. So we see this pattern throughout the scriptures. God destroying what's corrupt and raising the new beginning. That's the pattern of the scriptures. The reason why today we talk about the Old and the New Testament is the pattern of the scriptures. The reason why we talk about the cross of Christ is, is the pattern of the scriptures of God destroying what's corrupt and raising the new beginning. The temple approach of asking for forgiveness, it became corrupt and it became power-driven. There were these people that you had to pass through in order to, to access God. Jesus came once and for all, he gave us access straight to God. We can call him Father without going via the priest. The old order swept away and the new order brought in. What were the marks of the old order? It was a lack of godly leadership. Eli, who was their leader for 40 years, he was a great man. 
but he fails to lead them in, God, in godly ways. Under his leadership, there was decay and corruption. God was wiping that away. Not Eli, the era. It was an immoral and corrupt priesthood. That was the mark of the old era. The two sons of Eli who were killed in the battle, they were exactly the face of corruption and immorality in the temple. We've got our people in South Africa that we call the face of corruption. Here in this passage that we've just read, Hophni and Phineas were the face of immorality and corruption. The third mark of the old era was famine of the word of God. That's what we read when Samuel was born. He couldn't understand who was calling him because he's not familiar to this voice that I can't see who's calling me. Because the word of God was rare. So God had to wipe this away and allow the new to emerge in order for us to go forward. So what can we learn quickly? It seems to me the Israelites were able to come to their senses when they have been through a season of suffering. But I don't see any difference between them and us today. It takes a season of troubles and trials for us to take a moment and realize that, wait a minute, I think I'm going through some spiritual battles. It takes us some wills to fall off before we give God an attention. Before we give God some air time and turn to prayer. Turn to prayer. Apu and I were reflecting this week, and one of the things that we were talking about was we haven't prayed together in a long time. I wonder if that is the mark of a good season or it's the mark of laziness in us. Doesn't mean that we're not praying, but praying and dedicating time together and thinking about things together. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verses 10, godly grief produces repentance that leads to, self, to salvation. So that's the first one. This devastating defeat of the people of God before they are enemies. And nothing can be compared to it. Second one, I'm going to be briefer on this one. A true Repentance. How are the people of God are going now to turn around? I've already hinted or alluded to this, that they were very sentimental in their approach to God. Even the ark of God, actually, they, 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 were, they came to a place where they were using it as a, whip, as a magic weapon when they're going to battle. They became lazy and used all these resources they have and not do what they were supposed to do. They became half-hearted in their worship of God. So verses 3 and 9, I'm just going to read there, not all of them. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods, and Ashtoreth, 
from among you and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and Ashtoreth and they served the Lord only. These words that I've just read, they are conventional words. They are churchy words. We know them in church. We've heard them 120 times. Every pastor will repeat them. You must turn to the Lord. You must confess your sin. You must cry out and sought, seek after God. These are conventional truths. Every pastor teaches them. Every leader of the church will exhort the people of God constantly to turn to God. But what do they mean? What does it mean to serve God only? Well, it's got two meanings. It's got the immediate meaning, and it's got the meaning that applies to us. The immediate meaning is that the Israelites, for 20 years, were in this pluralistic society. I had to say that one slowly, because I can stumble. Where people were worshipping many gods. That's where they were. The Philistines were happy with Dagon, the Ark, and the other name. But the God who brought them out of Egypt wants to be served, wants to be the only God they serve. That's what it means in their context. Put away the foreign gods. Put them away. The Baals and the Asherahs. Put them away practically and literally take them away. That's what it means. But what does it mean to us? Because we don't have... I could be wrong. We don't have things in our houses. As we come in in our house, we make sure that we, we kneel on them. So what does it mean? Well, the New Testament helps us. It gives us the language of the idols, the things that we hold on to, the things that we worship other than God. Put them away. Release them. Let go of those things and serve God only. If you do that, God will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Did you see that one in the verse? If we do that. So verses 3 you have to read yourselves of the foreign gods. Verses 4, you have to put away Baals and Ashtoreths. You cannot serve God only unless you do this. That's the action we are to do. What are the things that we hold on to? One thing that affects all of us is the spirit of discontentment. The fact that we are never satisfied with what we have. We always wish we had what they have. I've got two children. They are the best in reminding me this. We wish we had what they have. It doesn't matter how many times you sit them down and give them their own context, which is different to the context of these other children. They're going to come back again and again. We are never satisfied with our homes. 
with our partners, with our children. I've just spoken about my own children. With our food. With the clothes, with the money. There is always something that bugs us. And it causes us to say, if only. If only. And I don't think there is any one of us who is free from this. We all have this struggle entirely. But the living relationship with the Lord is the only cure to this. When we are able to throw ourselves to God. I found every time I begin my prayers with thank you Lord, I realize suddenly I have a lot to be grateful for. I find it. As I go to prayer, I don't have words in my mind but I say, thank you, Lord. Suddenly, I have something to be thankful for. Even in my hard seasons, I still have something to be grateful for. God has sustained me. God has provided me. God has done that for you as well. And he wants to do that as well. Of course, the spirit of discontentment will be a continuous battle for us, for all the sons and daughters of Adam, that is something that we're going to battle with, but it's, we are wise when we recognize it because we can bring it at the foot of the cross and acknowledge it and name it. Let's go to the last one. People of God suffering this devastating defeat and they turn away from worshiping other gods and worship God only. What happened? There is this triumphant rescue. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called it Ebenezer. For he said, Thus far the Lord has helped us. God is now remaking his people and is helping them. But what's interesting about this particular incident is that in chapter 4, Ebenezer was the place of defeat. If you read chapter 4, verses 1, that's where this humiliating attack took place. It was at Ebenezer, and the Israelites were destroyed. So the Ebenezer stands for defeat in chapter 4, but it stands for victory in chapter 7. God is the one who has the final say. This suggests, therefore, Ebenezer as a standard for the church is defeat turned into victory. I always have a picture in my mind or an imagination in my mind of someone who stands in the middle of his journey putting up this stone as a mark of God's intervention. He's been going and now he puts the stone, he looks back on the journey he's been on with thanksgiving. Ebenezer is a stone of help. Ebenezer is a stone to commemorate God's intervention in a particular space in our lives. But I like the, 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 the definitions that we find in different versions of Ebenezer. Ebenezer, thus far the Lord has helped us. Thus far the Lord has kept us. Hitherto, the Lord has helped us. I know someone who named their home 
hitherto. That's a story of God for those people who live in that home. They're telling a story that what we have is by God's grace. I like it in Kosa. Both in English and in Kosa, the emphasis is God. I saw some smiles when I spoke in Kosa. That's a beautiful language. I know. All these definitions are not attributing this victory to the new strategy the Israelites have employed. No, they're pointing to God's help. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Consider something here. The Israelites were 30,000 soldiers when they were defeated. And now they are a tiny bit number and they overcome their enemy. What's the lesson? No matter how many they are, if God is not with them, they're going to be defeated by their enemy. Or no matter how few they are, if God is with them, they will overcome their enemy. The, the trick is that they are, they are to be in good relation with God. Where are you with God? Where are you with God? Are you fighting this battle in your own strength? Or are you saying, thus far the Lord, Lord, take charge from here. I've tried all my strategies. They did not work. You remember Gideon's stories? Until there were 300 soldiers, then God said, go and fight. Because they would think they have overcome. Lloyd-Jones once said, we must not be deceived into thinking that it's the strength of our enemy that causes our defeat. Are we in right standing with God? That's the, the secret. The church of God is victorious. That's what it means to us today. When it is rightly related to God. And it loses however many people they have when it is not rightly related to God. That's the lesson for us. We look back with thanksgiving, but we look forward with a renewed sense of hope. Verses 13 gives us this beautiful summary. The Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of of Israel. The hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israelites were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath and, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Can we meditate on those words? We not only look back with thanksgiving, but we look forward with a renewed sense of hope. I wondered, though, as I was sitting down there, this I hadn't think about it until this morning, that the chapter opens with mentioning how many years the Israelites were oppressed by their enemies. 
and it ends with this time that is not counted for where they were free from their enemies and their enemies did not invade their territory any longer and the hand of God was against their enemies. There is no mentioning of numbers of years. It was forever and ever and ever. I wonder if it's not echoing the words of one Peter. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will restore you, will strengthen you, will confirm you and establish you, and to him be glory and dominion. I wonder if that is not the echo of those words. The little while in this context is 20 years. That's too long for you and I. But still it's the little while when we end the chapter. Because the chapter doesn't count how many years the Israelites were free from their enemies. May we face this new season with a sense of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. What are you thanking God for in spite of all the challenges you face? But Ebenezer also means what are you trusting God for? Because if he was with you till this point, surely he will be with you in the new challenges that lies ahead of you. psalmist says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I go to the depths of the earth, you are there. If I say light must go and darkness must come and cover me, even thick darkness will be as light to you. If I go to the ends of the earth, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will guide me. Where can I go from your spirit? Thank you, Lord, that you are everywhere. As we come to this end of this year, we all can say there were dark seasons. But even in those dark seasons, I can trace his hand. We ask you, Lord, to lift us up from whatever muddy clay we may be in, whether it's a spiritual one or psychological one or financial one, may you lift us up as we launch into the new season. May we, like the Israelites, remember those words that the Philistine did not invade their territory for as long as Samuel led them. May we say that, Lord, as we launch into the new season. We worship you. Amen. Thank you very much for joining us. For those of you who came for the first time,